Good morning. We return to our study in 1 John. We're actually getting pretty close to finish our study in 1 John. We have only three more messages. So this one and two more. And it's been, it's been a joy to study this series um, on 1 John, the tests of genuine faith. I think it encourages us who have believed in Jesus, have trusted in the Lord, and calls us to examine ourselves, right? I think it is a good uh, place to, to do that. So our, passage, our text today is 1 John chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 6 through 12. Entitle our sermon, The Witnesses of the Gospel. The Witnesses of the Gospel. If you haven't gotten a sermon outline yet, there's some extra ones there in the table. In the back, I like putting some uh, takeaway questions, you know, where you can take it home and meditate and to think about what you just heard. Sometimes we think, oh, I, I've learned this, I know this. Um, but it isn't until we start meditating and musing on those words and how do they apply to my life? How do I apply to the lives of others? That, that will make a difference. So I want to encourage you to do that. Um, all right. The witnesses of the gospel, Bertrand Russell lived from 1872 to 1970. He was a well-known um, atheistic philosopher who authored more than 100 books, wrote a three-volume autobiography, and was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1950. One of the best known of his most best known books is Why I'm Not a Christian. It was penned in 1927. In this book, he reasoned that all organized religions are the reminder of a remainder of a barbaric past, and they dwindle to mere hypocritical superstitions which are unrealistic. On one occasion, Russell was asked what would he say to God if he found himself standing before him? And Russell's answered. I probably would ask, sir, why did you not give me better evidence? The Apostle John would disagree with Russell when it comes to the issue of evidence. As an eyewitness of the life and passion and the resurrection of Jesus, John, as a lasting living apostle, when he wrote this letter, would testify that there is abundant and overwhelming evidence that Jesus is the Son of God, and therefore God exists. The problem is not with the evidence. The problem is with a sinful and unbelieving heart. As Charles Spurgeon says it well, he says, Christianity puts forth very lofty claims. She claims to be true faith and the only true one. She avows her teachings to be divine and therefore infallible. While her great teacher, the Son of God, she demands divine worship and unreserved confidence and obedience of man. Her commands are issued to every creature, and though at present her authority is rejected by millions of mankind, she confidently looks forward to a time when the truth of God shall obtain dominion, and Jesus the Lord shall take unto himself his great power and reign. 
Now, to justify such high claims, the gospel ought to produce strong evidence, and it does. It does not lack for external evidences. These are abundant. End of quote. And I mean, we have seen there are movies made out there, there are books written on evidences that the gospel is true, that Christ has lived. Really, it's not about evidence, is it? The lack of evidence. In our text today, it will almost be like we're brought into a courtroom setting. Some form of the Greek word martyrs, um, which is translated testify, testimony, or give a testimony, of course, ten times in our passage. So John places in the dock these different witnesses who will testify to the fact that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God and who gives the gift of eternal life to all those that trust him. These witnesses, they have different but complementary perspectives, and their witnesses is comprehensive, building a powerful case that Jesus is the Son of God. Two weeks ago, we studied how faith overcomes the world and its lovelessness. But it's, it must not be thought that any kind of faith is a faith that overcomes the world. John has a particular kind of faith in mind. What he has in mind is the faith in Jesus, the Son of God who came in flesh. And now he puts before us this paragraph which emphasizes the more forceful the reality of Jesus coming into this world. So let's get to our text. Chapter 5, verse, let's just start in verse 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three who testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of man, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this. He has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. And the one that, who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you're an amazing Lord that teaches us about yourself. You do not leave us without answers about where we came from, who we are, and what we're made for. What is our purpose? Lord, in this passage, I pray, Father, that you would challenge our thinking about our relationship with you, and if you truly believe who you are, and because of that, to find life in Jesus Christ. Lord, encourage those that already trust you, and maybe open the eyes of those that don't. Pray, Lord, that you would convict, instruct, and help us in any way we need, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our outline here, we only have two simple um, 
points. One is God's testimony concerning his son from verses 6 through 9. And then verses 10 through 12 is the believer's testimony concerning the son. So let's go first to God's testimony concerning the son. Jesus Christ, who is the object of our faith, right? We talked about the faith that overcomes the world last time. So he is the object of this faith. And to start here, he says that he came, not necessarily just he came into the world, but he came in the position of being a savior. He came to us through certain historical events which enable him to give us eternal life. These were the circumstances which Jesus came in order to reach us as a savior. He came by water and he came by blood. And I have to be honest with you, there is a lot of confusion <laughs> on this text. People scratch their heads and they think, what is this talking about? Um, some see this as a reference to the water of physical birth or the water that flowed from the side of Jesus when the Roman soldier speared him on the side and some water and blood came out. Some others see this as the two sacraments or the ordinances of baptism that involves water and the Lord's Supper that involves blood. Now, this last perspective is actually held by Martin Luther and John Calvin. But really, as we study the text, and I had to really put <laughs> a lot of effort in trying to understand this, in its historical context of refuting the false teachings of the Gnostics permeating John's time, who said that Christ, and, and that's why the importance of this text here, we have to see this in the context of the Gnostics that denied that Jesus was the Son of God. So this is how what they believed. They said that Christ's spirit descended on the man Jesus, so Christ was not Jesus, they're two separate entities, but in the moment of Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descended on Jesus the man, but abandoned him by the time of his death. So this is what they believed. The words, he did not come by water only, but by water and by blood was a rebuttal to these false teachers. No, he was son of God, and the Christ, the same person who was both at the water and at the blood. The precise identity of those who taught is not absolutely clear at that time. It is likely there was more than one group of Gnostics in the church of Ephesus where you know, um, John is writing this letter to. But certainly the heretic named Serinthus lived in Ephesus and he taught that the heavenly Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism and then left him at his death. Such ideas were circulating in John's area. Such a notion regards Jesus and the Christ as two distinct personalities. Jesus died on this view, but Jesus Christ the Son did not. John will have none of this. He's saying Jesus Christ did not come by water only. He came by water and by blood. That is, the man Jesus also is the Christ, the Son of God. He became a true man, and he came to us by being empowered at his baptism. He came to us by truly dying upon the cross. So moving on, I want to state here the reliability of God's testimony. Is that This is the point that John is trying to make here. This is something reliable. These three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the spirit are witnessing to something. So first, let's see the water. 
Um, so the most clear way of understanding this is that he came through the water of baptism, a very important event in Jesus' life. So much so that it's found in all four Gospels, the moment that Jesus was baptized. Jesus existed before his baptism as the Son of God, but his ministry to us involved his coming to us through the water. He was the Son of God before his baptism, but the baptism was the occasion of his being empowered by the Holy Spirit to start his ministry. Here, the triune God is revealed and Jesus is anointed for his public ministry. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, and let's see that account. Matthew chapter 3. It's explaining how Jesus came to us. Matthew chapter 3, and we're looking at uh, verses 16. Actually, let's start in verse 13. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? It was pretty confusing because baptism was a sign of repentance. right? But Jesus answered, said, to him, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. But he, bap- he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came, up, came out immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. This father's declaration, this voice from heaven, combines words both from Psalm 2, verse 7, a messianic psalm, as well as Isaiah 42, 1, that the, sir, the first of the servant songs, Jesus is indeed the anointed son who will become a king. However, he will be a suffering king in his first coming, right? A servant king. This is the witnesses of his father at his baptism. Some have pointed out that being sinless, Jesus had no need to be baptized. He, he does not belong there, and that is true, because he has no sin, has no need for repentance. But I like the way that Pastor Daniel Aiken explains it. He said, he no more belongs at baptism of repentance than he does on a cross for sinners, In both events, he identifies himself with sinners. He came to save. He didn't need to be there, but he was identifying himself with the sinners that he came to save. He continues, our Lord's baptism says, look at the Holy Spirit of God descending on him and anointing him and says, listen to the voice of the Father and his announcement concerning him. Jesus was not a mere man. He is the Son of God who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is the water, which is Jesus' baptism. Now we see the blood. What is this blood talking about? The second witness that the apostle calls to the stand is the crucifixion of Christ. This is represented by the blood, which of course three times in this just in these three verses, six, seven, and eight. The work of our Savior was initiated at his baptism, and it was finished by his bloody death on the cross. 
Jesus himself said that his death, um, Jesus himself um, said from the cross in John 19.30, it is finished. He came through the blood. That is to say, he had to die and his death was real. Now, if we just look back a few chapters in 1 John, we'll see that Jesus' death and his blood being shed has already been mentioned a few times. So chapter 2, verse 2, what does it say? And he himself is the propitiation, he is what? The sacrifice for our sins. He's the payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the entire world. What does the sacrifice involve? It involves the shedding of blood. In chapter 4, verse 10, he says, In this we love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be what? The propitiation for our sins. So truly, we know that the blood of Christ at the cross has the power to atone for our sins, has the power to remove our sins. The historical fact that Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross for us is indispensable for his coming. Because some might question, well, he, wasn't re he really didn't die. It, it just looked like he died. No, the Bible does say that he died, and he was buried for three days. When Jesus Christ died on a cross as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, his father again provided significant witnesses concerning the event. It was one of the most phenomenal events. And we will see some of this in our, um, in our Resurrection Sunday. But in Matthew chapter 27, I'm not going to read in there. I'll just make references in here, but you, you have there on the outline. There was darkness across the land from noon until three o'clock, a very unusual event to mark this is important. This is something happening here. The curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from the top to bottom. Mind you, the curtain in the temple was what separated the rest of us from the Holy of Holies. Only once a year someone can, could come inside there because of the holiness of God. When Jesus died, that separation was broken. The veil was torn, and we can come straight to God. There was an earthquake in that event as well. So, and then there was a number of Old Testament saints who were raised and appeared to as many as the first fruits of resurrection for all who trust in Jesus. And these events led to a, even a hardened Roman centurion to exclaim, this truly is the, is the Son of God. Even an unbelieving Roman soldier, when he, said, he saw all these events happening, he declared, this is the Son of God. Jesus of Nazareth was not God's special agent who was adopted at his baptism but abandoned at the cross. He was and is the Son of God who entered this world in time and space and died as our propitiation, as John says. His death was not an accident. It is not an act of martyrdom. It was divine saving substitution for sinners with the redeeming value and worth. Now I want to take some application here because I know that modern persons might articulate their rejection of Christ and his atoning death for different reasons than those in the first century. 
But the bottom line is the same. They say that Jesus of Nazareth suffering was a brutal, bloody death, has no redemptive value, and bears no significance for salvation. Uh, this uh, Dolores Williams uh, represents this perspective when she says, there is nothing divine about the blood of the cross. This is too gruesome. God wouldn't do this. Others will even charge the biblical portrayal of our Lord's death as in its better view as cosmic child abuse. And still others believe we pursue a wiser course of theological discourse by offering to modern persons what David Paulison calls a therapeutic gospel. And I can tell you, this is so common nowadays. People are not looking for Jesus for salvation anymore. They want healing of, of their psychological ailments. Does Jesus care about our psychological problems? Yes, he does, but he came primarily to save us from our sins. This gospel, the therapeutical gospel, gives people what they want and, and promotes their welfare and temporal happiness. You know, you don't have to change. You just, just let God take care of you. He's your therapist. But you don't have to change. As Paulison says, it does not want the king of heaven to come down. It does not attempt to change people into lovers of God, given the truth who Jesus is, what he's like, and what he does. But the cross says that the king of heaven has come down and that God in Christ is reconciling the world into himself. This is the true biblical witness of our Lord's crucifixion. Isaiah chapter 53 talks about that, right? That God was pleased to crush him. Why? Is that God enjoys torturing people? No. It's because by punishing him, we wouldn't have to suffer the condemnation that Jesus endured. And he was resurrected. He is alive today. This is the true and biblical witness of the Lord's crucifixion. Praise his name. He did not come, he did come to die for us, and he did come to change us. All right, the third witness, the spirit, the spirit. This is referring to Jesus' anointing and really the anointing of the spirit, even in the believers. The third witness is invited to testify to the fact that Jesus, the son of God, is the Holy Spirit of God. He's referenced three times. It's interesting that each of these are referenced three times. In, in verse six, the Bible says that the spirit provides a consistent and continuous witness that Jesus is the Messiah, and he does so because the Spirit is truth. We have read that about the Spirit of God. He is the one that tells the truth, that enables us to tell the truth. Jesus said the exact same thing about the Holy Spirit in John 15, verses 26 and 27, if you can open your Bible there. John 15, John chapter 15. And we're looking at verse 26 and 27. In this chapter, um, Jesus is describing the role of the Holy Spirit when he comes. And what does he say? When the helper or the advocate or the comforter comes, I will send to you from the Father that it is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father and he will testify about me. 
And you will also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Why were they able to testify? Because they've been with Jesus and they would have the spirit of truth dwelling in them to enable them to testify about this truth. As John MacArthur puts it, points it out, the Father also testified to the Son through the ministry of the Spirit whose truth, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth in that he is true and therefore the source and revealer of divine truth, particularly about Jesus Christ. The Spirit was involved at Jesus' conception, right? It says that the Spirit came over Mary, and that's how he was conceived. The Spirit was involved in his baptism, even came in a form of a dove descending on Jesus. He was involved in his temptation. Mark 1.12 says that. And throughout all his ministry, Jesus operated in the dependence of the spirit that was with him, just like you and I are dependent on the spirit today. Peter said that those that gathered Cornelius' house with respect to Jesus of Nazareth, that God anointed him with the spirit and with power, he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. The ministry of Jesus was empowered by the Spirit, according to Acts 10.38, that I just read to you. Because the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus for ministry to attribute God's miraculous works to Satan as the Pharisees did, that was to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Why? Was Jesus doing the miracles? It wasn't the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus was doing the miracles through the power of the Spirit. Jesus always did the will of the Father in the power of the Spirit, in a quote. So in verse 8, the Spirit actually, so we, we first saw water, blood, and the Spirit, and then verse 8 kind of changed the orders of things here, where it says the Spirit first, and then the blood and the Spirit. Why is that? The Spirit is mentioned first because He is who testifies to us through the water and the blood. But all three are in agreement. That's what he's saying here. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, Pastor James Merritt addresses well this ministry of the Holy Spirit as it testifies to the Son. He says, uh, open quote, the witness of the Spirit is God's witness to us and in us and through us. Just as the arrow of a compass always points towards the north, the Spirit of God always points to Jesus. The Spirit of God always points to Jesus. Jesus summarized the Spirit's work in John chapter 16, 14. He will glorify me. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit also testifies internally and invisibly. The main thing that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts is to testify to Christ. He's a secret inner teacher. He illumines and convicts and persuades the message that he writes upon our hearts is a message concerning our sinfulness and concerning the life that is to be found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Spirit's testimony is not simply an inward experience, no attestation outside ourselves. The Spirit's testimony is an application of the testimony of the pre previous historical events. So when we see the water of the baptism of the Lord Jesus and when we see the blood that was shed on a cross, the Spirit testifies within us that that was true and that's how we believe. John's emphasis on the fact that there are three witnesses 
that the witnesses all agree recalls an important re reliability principle, and that's the main point of these three witnesses. The threefold witnesses of water, the baptism, the blood of the cross, and the spirit agree. This reflects the Old Testament expectation of Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. You don't need to open there, but Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness may not testify against another person for any trespass or sin that he commits. So a matter may be legally established only on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's why John is calling to here three witnesses to establish this is a fact. This is true, and it's to be believed. So although these three witnesses are different kinds of witnesses, yet the three are in agreement. This is a legal principle that in, in any court case, no evidence is to be accepted unless the witnesses agreed. The witnesses are consistent with each, other, with each, not as the witnesses of the Pharisees when Jesus was crucified. Remember when they were called to court to testify against Jesus? their statements didn't match one another. This is not true what John is saying here. These witnesses in verse eight says, and the three are in agreement. The witnesses are consistent with, um, that is not the case with God's witnesses because it is consistent and it can be relied upon. Jesus applied the legal maxim the witness of history and the witness of the spirit testify of the same thing. Jesus is the son of God come in the flesh. Then verse nine, we know already that the testimony that God gives of his son is reliable because they agree with each other. Now we will see the superiority of God's testimony. If we receive the testimony of man, verse nine says, the testimony of God is greater, it is superior it is better, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. So let's see this. John has outlined the nature of the testimony of God the Father about Jesus the Son, and is about to go on to summarize the testimony in order to provide a proper ending to the letter. But before he gets to the end of the letter, he pauses to show why the divine testimony should be believed. There are two reasons. First, it is greater than a human testimony, which all people accept, or at least at times. And second, willful unbelief is sin. Verse 8 has introduced one important legal maxim in John's argument. The principle points to the fact that these, are, these witnesses agree, but then here he introduces another, the principle of character, the principle of character of a witness. This is obviously an important principle in any system of law, but it was particularly important in Judaism where it took the form of listing those who were by reason of their professions were questionable actions unqualified to bear testimony. In this list were found thieves, shepherds, because they seem to have their gaze, um, their sheep graze on the other people's lands, violent persons, and everyone suspected of financial dishonesty, including tax collectors and custom officials, they could not testify. Why? Because their character didn't allow them to testify. The Talmudic tractate of Pesherin, this is some of the writings of the Jewish people, 
contains a passage indicating that the people of the land or common folk were also excluded. This principle is illustrated here in John 8, 14, when Jesus says, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true because I know where I come from and where I'm going. But you people do not know where I come from and where I am going. This was Jesus talking to the Pharisees. And he's saying, you know, my testimony is reliable because I know my origins. I come from the Lord. Earlier, on the base of the principle requiring two or three witnesses in chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus said that if he should bear witness to himself, he would not be acceptable. It's interesting. He's not contradicting himself. He's just using the true principles. He's saying, if it, if it was just me speaking of, mis, of myself, you shouldn't believe me because you need two or three witnesses to agree with each other. And then he did bring the three witnesses, right, from the Lord. But here in John 8, he argues on the base of the principle of character to say that if the witness of mere man is accepted, if corroborated by others, why should not this testimony be accepted for itself alone that he is much more than man? The rabbis rejected the testimony of unreliable man. They accepted the testimony of an upright man when substantiated by what other man said it. Clearly, they should accept the testimony of Jesus who know both his origins and his destiny. He judges according to the truth and not after the flesh and his opponents as his opponents do and works in perfect unity, unity with the Father. So this is the same approach that John is using here in 1 John chapter 5. John argues from our willingness to accept human testimony, which, which we all know that humans are failing. We will make mistakes sometimes. Men and women accept the witness of other human beings every day. Otherwise, we would not be able to operate. You can't sign a contract if you don't trust people. You can't sign a check if you don't trust people. You can't pay your bills or buy a ticket, or ride a bus, and do any other thousands of things if you don't trust people. Now, if we trust people, how much more should we trust God who is trustworthy? Now, then John says, why should they not believe God whose word alone is superior and absolutely trustworthy. So this, my friends, was the testimony of God. Now let's see the believer's testimony concerning his son from verses 10 to 12. The internal testimony of faith in the son. Internal testimony of faith in the son. Verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself, and the one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. John L. does a very interesting and in, in, in strategic turn here. He ties together our outward confession of Jesus as the Son of God with the inner witness on how we have within ourselves what we confess with our mouth about Jesus, God makes it real in our hearts. This is kind of goes with uh, what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. If you're not familiar, let's open there. 
Romans 10. And we're primarily looking at verse 9 and 10. Romans chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And then Roman 8, Romans 8, 16 also adds, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. So there is this internal testimony in the life of the believer that he knows deep inside that he knows the Lord. And that's what John is arguing for here. You believe the historical facts, you believe the witness of the Spirit, but there's more. There is a result in our hearts that it witnessed to us that the Spirit testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. The internal witness of God's Spirit in the heart confirms that to the child of God that he or she was right to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, who alone gives the gift of eternal life. This internal testimony or witness is the person, personal presence of God in us. And it beautifully balances and complements the external and historical witness of the baptism and the crucifixion of Jesus, all witnessed by the Holy Spirit. Commentator puts this well where he says, the external witnesses faithfully accepted becomes now a internal certitude. The external witnesses the witness faithfully accepted becomes now an internal certitude, a certain, an assurance for us. So in the context of practical application, this verse is of a great value. Does, John does not point us back to prior experience. He leads us to look now today to a present testimony and to our present witness. Who are you trusting today? Whom are you believing in today? Where is your hope and confidence today? Is it Christ? If so, then rest assured that you have the Son and his gift of eternal life. Not knowing, you know, I sometimes see people struggling because they don't recall the date when they were saved and they struggle. I just wish I knew that and I can't have certainty the time when they were converted, the exact moment when that happened. But a past experience can be helpful. But it is the present day testimony. Who do you believe in today that provides the confirmation and assurance that God wants you to enjoy and that your soul longs to have? I am believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what gives us assurance you will find that confession to be a blessed avenue for assurance that will cause you to proclaim with passion, Jesus is the Son of God. If a person does believe God, he has internal assurance, and he has believe, what he has believed is trustworthy. This is the work of the Spirit. This is what the Reformers called this Latin, I don't like reading Latin that much, but this is what he, they, they believe is testimonial internal spirit sancti. 
just basically the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit in the believer. It is in addition to the assurance provided on other grounds. On the other hand, if a person does not believe God, he makes him out to be a liar. In this way, he eloquently testifies of the belief that, he can, that God cannot be trusted. When someone refuses to believe the testimony of God, he's saying, God, you cannot be trusted. Here's the heinous nature of unbelief is evident. As John Stott writes, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. It is sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood on him. Then the other element of this internal testimony is that the life that we have in the Son, verses 11 to 12, it says, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life in his Son. In his son. I, every time I read this text, I keep remembering the song from um, children's ministry that we, it was the exact verses, and they keep playing my mind. Um, and the life is in his Son. John calls his final witness to stand to testify the truth of Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And it's the witness of the eternal life that we have. The connection between having the Son and having life is so essential that John will mention the Son seven times from nine, verses 9 to 13 in life five times. So if you have the Son, you have life. Eternal life is a quality life, God quality, quality life. It's a God kind of life. It has particular character or essence as well as never-ending duration. Having Jesus, the Son of God, equals having eternal life. This is God's testimony. This is God's gift. God has given us eternal life. This life that is in his Son is to be found in no one else. Remember John 14, 6 is a verse well known by us. What does he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. In fact, to have the Son is to have life. To not have the Son means that you do not have life. Having the Son of God equals life. Not having the Son of God equals spiritual death. To not have the son means that you're walking, talking, dead man. You're a spiritual corpse in a physical body. As James Boyce notes this, John's reference to eternal life as the essence of salvation carries us back to the opening of verses of the letter in which he wrote that this life was revealed in Jesus, who is himself life. Eternal life is not merely unending life. Therefore, it is the very life of God. What are we promised in Christ is a participation in the life of the one who bears this testimony. This life is not to be enjoyed by everyone, however. This life is in Christ. Consequently, it is impossible to have life without having Christ. It is, is impossible to have Christ without, at the same time, possessing eternal life. My dear brother and sister, the Bible teaches that you do not have to hope you have eternal life or even think that you have eternal life. It says that you know, that you can know for sure that you have this eternal life. 
when you already know the Son, Jesus Christ. It's not something that is to come. It is something that you already have right now because you know him. This witness, this gift of eternal life testifies to the Son of God and for he only is eternal who can give what is eternal. Sometimes I think about believers that are always complaining. They're always finding fault with everything. And I question, do these people have the life of Jesus in them? Do they trust their shepherd who said, I have come so that they may have life and they may have it abundantly? John chapter 10, 10. Do they trust that Christ cares for them? Think about the good shepherd described in Psalm 23, that he takes us to green pastures, that he protects us from our enemies, that he cares for us. This is life, a life that is cared for. Now I ask, do they trust that Christ cares for them, that provides for their every need, both physical and spiritual? Do they trust that God protects them from evil? Do they trust that even though we might go through tough times, he will use those circumstances to make us more like himself. This life, this eternal life is already here. We already experience the care and protection and the livelihood given to us by our dearest Savior. So conclusion, in concluding here, we have seen today that there can be no neutrality concerning faith and unbelief. No one can adopt a neutral position if one is not trusting Jesus as the Son of God, one is in effect calling God a liar. God has testified. The voice came from heaven at Jesus' baptism. Eyewitnesses tells us that they saw him shedding his blood. Some tell us that they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The day of the Pentecost came, and 2,000 years of church history have followed with endless accounts of his power of salvation of lives of men and women. Think about this for a moment. See the testimony of transformed lives. How can people change like that? How their lives take such a turn? It was the power of salvation through Jesus Christ. That's a witness that he is real. He has said, that he has to say about his son, no fuller revelation about Jesus will come until Jesus himself comes. The question now is simply, will you believe that God has said or will call him a liar? So I asked, do you believe the testimony of these God's witnesses to his son? Do you have seen, do you have this testimony in yourself? The one who has the son has life and the one who does not have the son does not have life. So I plead you to, with you today, choose life, choose Jesus. As Michael Eaton puts it, it is simple, either or matter. The experience of eternal life is altogether a matter of having the Son of God or not having him. At this point, the entire human, entire human race divides into two groups. Eternal life is in Jesus alone. If you do have not Jesus, you do not have any liveliness toward God. Without Jesus, there is no hope of heaven, no hope of glory beyond the grave. Eternal life is the life of eternity, a life of heavenly glory. But we do not have to wait until after the grave to get it. It is being offered now.
Anyone who has Jesus has life of eternity already. It is a foretaste of heaven. It is the energy of heaven that you get to experience. The joy of God's presence, which also characterizes heaven. We have it now. We have Jesus. It will grow and grow, shining more and more unto a perfect day, as Proverbs 5.18 says. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we, we are humbled, Lord, by our own unbelief. When you have left so many evidences in your creation of who you are. But much more, Lord, we know that there's so much evidence of the existence of our Lord Jesus who came to die for us as a sacrifice. Even in the life of those who have trusted you. Would let us rejoice with this wonderful truths. Let us find encouragement that our good shepherd cares for us, that we have life in him and a life in abundance. Lord, protect us, bless us in our week and our work. May your name be proclaimed in our lives so others might see that Jesus is the Son of God. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.